Hey everyone and welcome to the European VC Podcast. Today we have a bit of a special episode as I'm here alone in the host seat with two of our very esteemed guests, Toby, founding GP of Joint Capital and someone who will probably need a little introduction to any of you because we've got our good friend, Mr. Joe Shorts from Isomer Capital in the seat as well. And today's episode is different in another way as well because we're here to talk about Joint Capital but as you just saw, we're not only going to talk with Tobias, as the GP that founded the firm, but also with their trusted LP, Isomer Capital. And remember, everyone, if you're listening in and love our show, do drop us a review, follow the pod, and subscribe at eu.vc. Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. This, this is a union of values, values. United and determined. We can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings, new new beginnings. Let's start acting, 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 acting. This show is not investment advice, and the hosts of this episode may be invested in the funds and companies featured. So let's kick this off, Tobias, and jump into the story of Joint Capital. Tell us about it. Yeah, hi, everybody. Uh, lovely to be here. Um, and it, it's an honor. Uh, we've never done this. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm very excited to do this with Joe, which is great, because we go way back, um, as you can imagine. Yeah, so Joint Capital is a company that we founded in 2015. Um, we're a team of previous corporate venture guys and um, saw an opportunity um, to invest in what we now call the new industry. And um, 2015 obviously was not quite as it is today or it was for the last five years. So for us, getting the firm up and running was, was quite a challenge. Um, nevertheless, um, it, um, it was possible for us to do to, to early deals, um, find entrepreneurs that... Um, uh, fit to our thesis, and yeah, we concluded a successful first fund and are currently on our second. And I think the original founding idea of JOIN has always been um, launching a fund that invests in a thesis or very specific sector thesis. And for us, that is the digitization of industry. Um, and um, this was kind of a novelty back then. It's now becoming a, a broader topic of, and, and there's more capital flowing in these kind of companies. But that was our original ideas. And join, we, we called it join because for us, it's always been a joint effort between entrepreneurs, um, the investors, and of course, the corporate customers, which are very important if you're running a B2B focused fund. When someone says industry, I very quickly think about hardware as well. How do you think about hardware? I think hardware is, is not to be uh, neglected. Um, in the future, there will be more and more hardware uh, everywhere uh, you look. As of today, we mainly focus on software companies. Um, some software needs a little bit of hardware to facilitate the software sale, and, and that for us is fine. But kind of the pure dominant hardware investing, we have not yet figured out really for us. Um, we're open. We're, we're seeing more and more but uh, it hasn't been really a priority for fund one or fund two. Now, Joe, 
we should bring you into this and, and I want to hear from you how you got into this, the story of join. Well, ladies and gentlemen, cast your mind back to 2015. <laughs> As to Toby mentioned, I for, forgot the date, but uh, I met I met Toby and, and Jan actually uh, when they still worked for a large German corporation and they had a big idea. And, and that, that big idea was, you know, what you just heard. I also had a big idea. This was even before our isomer started. And I don't think you had the name join and I don't think I had the name isomer, <laughs> but we had, we had these big ideas and we found each other through the network. Um, and you, you were saying, well, we're going to, you know, create a fund focused on, on this area. And I said, yeah, I'm going to create a fund too, if I can get it together. And I always smile because as you said, Toby, um, if you think it's hard to raise a new fund now, to try in 2015. <laughs> um, it's gotten a lot easier and, and Europe's gotten a lot more successful over that time. But, you know, why I got excited about the ideas behind Join because I worked in manufacturing early in my career. Uh, I struggled as, as the head of tech for a group of engineering and manufacturing companies I struggled with a lot of the issues that joint capitals trying to invest in and bring solutions to factory floor automation, logistics, um, and having uh, spent quite a few years myself working on those problems and running software development teams, addressing those problems or buying software to fix those problems. You're basically trying to make old traditional companies go better, faster and cheaper. And so when I heard the thesis for join, I thought, yeah, I understand that problem. And, you know, I spent years working on that and it's, you haven't even started really scratching the surface of, of digitizing these things. I, I kind of agree on the hardware point as well, by the way. Um, I think where hardware enables the business, then that's investable um, with a venture capital lens and, and target return. However, where hardware is the business, that takes you into more heavy capex and and uh, manufacturing, which is not really where venture capital can be effective and and have the venture returns that that we look for. Just to complete the story, so so the the, the happy part of the story is we we did end up creating a firm called Isomer. Uh, Toby ended up creating a firm called Join, and Isomer was the first investor in Join. I'd love to ask both of you because it's it's a bit funny sometimes. I and this goes to your corporate venturing uh, background, um, and I'd love to hear the perspectives of both of you. How you think about that? Because I always tend to kind of feel like there's some people in the VC industry that think less of corporate venture. Or they say, "Well, they're not real venture." Blah blah blah. And also, especially, and that's of course primarily coming from the normal venture guys that then are like you know you tend to then find a common enemy or <laughs> talk bad about people that are different from yourself. So I think that there's typical group dynamics in that. Um, but I'd love to ask you both, Joe, from the LP perspective, how, when you see a corporate venture team wanting to break out as a, as, as a full-fledged private VC, how do you think about that and underwriting that team? What do you see that they need to show that they understand? Um, and also you, Toby, when you were, when you were thinking back then, how were you thinking about pivoting out of the team and, and, and how do you, you know, 
think about both managing the process, but also what, what were the differences? What, where are the, the, the main risk factors? I think there are very different nuances of corporate venture in the in the spectrum. Yeah, so I, I think you have, um, and and there has been a lot of learning curve over the over the last fifteen years as well. Yeah, so I would assume that corporate venture, as we knew it back then, probably has evolved uh, uh, quite quite substantially. Yeah, but. I don't want to go. I think that'd be a different podcast going into the corporate ventures, do's and don'ts. Um, what I would say for today is, I mean, there was a reason we wanted to spin out. Yeah? And, and that reason is early stage venture is really a partnership model. Yeah? You got to take the risk. You have personal uh, skin in the game and also be responsible for the upside. And those, those elements are rarely seen in corporate venture where you're an employee in, in, in a big shop. Yeah. And and so I think that's absolutely fundamental because um, then you can stick to a portfolio theory and 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 basically ride the wave uh, till the end. Yeah? In corporate venture, you invest mostly for strategic reasons, and as we know, corporate strategies they change frequently, yeah? and, and that makes it very hard for a team trying to optimize a portfolio to stick to their initial investment thesis and also probably, yeah, get through. Um, times that are difficult and, and, and where the founders really need backing and, and not just kind of them being disregarded because the strategy is not a fit anymore. Yeah? So, so I think those were kind of difficult things for us to observe, but th there's one really good thing and that became the really secret sauce of join. And, and that is the awareness of the importance of being close to customers yeah because if you invest in a big multi-billion organization there are thousands of potential customers in that group uh, in that corporate yeah and finding a way to really using them to your advantage to help the entrepreneurs and and help in finding out the go-to market and product market fit that is a real skill and, and that is really the DNA of join. And, and that's what we retained yeah? from everything. I mean, learning a term sheet, learning a cap table, doing deals, that's mechanics. Yeah? And, and you can do that as well in a corporate setup than in a private setup. But like being able to understand how you connect the dots and, and, and make that asset available to your founding teams, that is what we retained. And that was the DNA and the basis of join. And, we even have just recently launched a, a program around this uh, officially. We can talk about it in a minute. But if you do B2B, that's, I think, really what sets you apart. And, and, and that, that was the really good part. And we learned that really well in, in the corporate world. And you, Joe, if you were just to chime in on this as an LP, seeing a team that, that wants to break out from, from, from a corporate venturing arm, how, how do you think about that? Yeah, I... I... Toby took all the good points. So how, how do I add to that? Uh, corporate VC teams, you, you first have to look at who, who the people are, where did they come from? What's their experience? That, that's always important, you know, and do you have a relevance for the entrepreneur? What, what are you bringing to the entrepreneur? Because the minute you spin out, you lose your big brand. You know, when you're a corporate VC, you have this big brand card that opens a lot of doors and then, you leave and then you're, you're, who are you, you know, with the card you invented last week. Uh, so, so you know, the first question has to be, do you have a relevance to founders and can you really bring anything to help them? You know, once you're out of that 
context. Um, I, I do agree a lot with what, what Toby was saying. Corporations have the problem of, of changing their strategy every, every year or two. And that's at odds with the objectives of early stage venture, which is we're going to invest in a company and expect to be part of the journey for quite some years because it takes a long time to build a company. So if you, you know, you, you often see within corporate venturing immediately from day zero, whether that's recognized or not, this conflict between the long-term needs of building companies and the short-term objectives uh, that, that do tend to change in the corporate context. So, what we look at, and, and we have backed uh, more than one ex-corporate VC, but what you're trying to figure out is, okay, if you look at the track record, um, d does that at all line up or in part line up with the thesis you're launching uh, to go private, if, if you will? And what can I understand about what you've done that, inf that could inform the future? Uh, you know, And we see a real mix from, from companies that, that on one end, maybe haven't changed strategy a lot, have a long-term point of view, almost act like a commercial VC, up to the other end where companies are investing not for investment reasons, as, as we think about it, but more for access to teams or market intelligence or other aspects. And there's and that's the funny thing about corporate venturing. Often a lot of investments are made for non-investment reasons. They, they may not perform economically, but they do other functions. So it's a little bit more complicated to, to tease out, you know, what were the investments you did? Why did you do them? How did they work out? And how can we understand them? But what I, you know, what I loved about, about the early days of JOIN and the, and the thesis that continues today, it was partly informed by the experience, but it was also really focused on a problem in industry. And it's an identifiable problem. It's a problem where if you're a founder in that area, you need a certain set of expertise. And so I just love that uh, that joining up, if you will, between what they were thinking to invest in and what I understood about about the market need. And I think that that's a great recipe for me. That's the exciting part. It wasn't that oh, there's a big brand there. You know, the brand goes away and um, that isn't relevant over time actually very relevant and and that's one of the the problems uh, <laughs> and that's where we've been super naive when we left is access to capital uh, this is probably for corporate venture teams something they don't think about that much how do you raise money if it doesn't come from the mothership yeah <laughs> and that for us was a big uh i mean that was a problem yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then you realize that dealing dealing with the executive team of uh, of the corporate was actually not as tough as dealing with uh, with LPs that haven't yet committed. Joe, you gave us the perfect segue to dive deeper on the uh, on the thesis of join and 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 Tobias. Really, I just want to set the context by saying that you've now more or less closed fund two, which is a hundred million euros. And I just want to hear more about your thesis, more about your strategy, what makes you different, and and then of course, as always, Joe, jump in. Give us the LP perspective on all of this. But Tobias, take us away. No, no, absolutely. So the, the way we see this at the moment and, and for the last couple of years where it started is there are significant challenges in the world. Obviously, we, we hear them every day. We see them in the news. 
But if you drill down into this industrial sector, there's really right three things that, that keep people awake at night. One is decarbonization. So I think it, it's a massive challenge to kind of decarbonize the way we produce, the way we organize supply chains, logistics. So it, the price for carbon will increase and, and people will be penalized if they don't bring this down. Yeah? Now um, it, it's tightly linked to energy costs. So, so um, the more efficient I can do stuff, the more I can keep my competitive advantage and the more I can even keep producing maybe even here in Europe. Yeah? So that's uh, another issue that people are are facing, and and lastly, and as it's becoming a real problem, um, the shortage of skilled labor. Uh, so, it, I mean, here if you go to the big automotive factories or even to machine building companies, they would love to produce more. They don't find the skilled labor to do it anymore. Yeah, and so for us, these three trends are really what we mean by the neue Industrie. And, and, and these are kind of old problems that can be solved with software. Yeah? And um, I think nowhere else in the world you have a density of real high-tech and academic clusters where uh, they spit out engineering talent that is capable of, of solving these problems with individual niche products. Yeah? And, and that's really our thesis, finding more the engineering talent, the, maybe the academic uh, um, talent, and and write tickets two, three, four million initial check in late seed or early A rounds, um, and help them define and 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 craft the go-to-market strategy. Uh, so so that's our approach, and um, we do this all over Europe. So our portfolio spans from Helsinki down to Lisbon, and um, our as I said, our secret source um, or our edge as we call it is that we have raised money from um, family offices and obviously from from some funder funds but mostly from family offices that still own and 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 keep operating a business yeah. and so in these businesses we have people identified that we call them the joint ambassadors and these are chief digital officers or chief transformation officers, and they are our direct link to the shop floor. And so before investing in any given company, we can get real life experience and feedback from people who have the problem, who are looking for solutions, and who can evaluate the solution at hand. And, and that is a real winner uh, because the entrepreneurs love it because we don't harass their existing client base when we do due diligence we bring some new people to the mix they give us the time to do so worst case they get customers but no investment we still stay friends yeah and so that's um and, and we can do this really well because we have that real thesis and and sector orientation yeah and and that's the ambassador program we launched it uh, in our on our portfolio day just a couple of weeks ago i think it's going to go out publicly tomorrow and and that's a key differentiator uh, for us really and if you talk to a founder in lisbon or even in london um, where maybe the density of industrial customers is not that high they see this as a real advantage and that's how we also get into deals outside of germany because we we can bring them and, and onboard them here really well i remember talking to sebastian about this program 
and that was before it was called an ambassador program. So first of all, it's something you've been doing forever. It's been ingrained into you, in, into your fund. Uh, now it's then <laughs> given a label, um, which I'm sure helps for marketing purposes. <laughs> but I'd, I'd love to ask you to be as if you could dive a bit deeper into into the mechanics of this because it's not a short process, right? It's not three weeks that you spend or let the founders spend with the LPs. It's, it's actually... It's, it's a quite lengthy process in many uh, uh, situations, as far as I remember. Luckily, we've never been exposed to this market where we were asked to deliver term sheets in two weeks. And, and luckily, these days are over, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. But you're right. I mean, it, it takes dedication and it takes also a little bit of will from the founders to work with us. Yeah? And, and But that's something we're looking for. Yeah? We're, we're looking for someone who wants to also build that relationship and also wants to incorporate the feedback, maybe even for the better yeah, of the company. And so it, it's not that it takes forever, but um, if we, we have this kind of after the first filter or first pitch, we have this deep dive approach to going really deep on a company. And within three weeks, um, we aim to really gain the significant feedback. Maybe then a pilot project or something takes longer, but the initial feedback is enough for us to inform our decision. Yeah? And so we don't have to go dating for, for a year to make an investment, but um, oftentimes where it worked really well is we already engaged with the company before they even thinking about fundraising. Yeah? So we met them at a demo day or we got introduced by some business angel or someone else. And um, even though they're just raised, maybe they're around, they're not even thinking about fundraising. We asked them, hey, would you mind maybe pitching this to uh, customer X, Y, Z? Yeah? And, and, and we kind of started to wrap our head around it already way before. Uh, and, and that worked uh, really well. Um, that's how it worked out for our last investment in Munich, a company called ModelWise. Um, it was really like a pass for us a year ago. Um, um, but we kept in contact and we showed it a few people. And as they kind of developed it and we gained more feedback, we were then very quick, actually, in making the decision to invest. That relationship for us is is crucial because we're dealing with highly educated, highly skilled people. They're sometimes probably among the top 10 people in their field. And, and it's really hard to challenge them on, on, the, uh, on the subject matter. Yeah? So, so for us, kind of the ROI perspective from customers is really the only real thing we can test. Yeah. And, and, and that's why we um, put such an emphasis on it. And, and, that's, um, and that's how we do it. Joe, when you hear that the LP base is an important part of the value add of the firm and they're incorporated part of it and so on, how do you as an, as an LP coming in with pure financial motivations then think about that? How do you diligence that, that, that this LP base is actually relevant, that they're actually working correctly and that... Obviously, Tobias and his team will have, they'll, they'll be exposed to a risk of managing the relationship between having them as LPs, but also as partners around the value add. And then they have an in, individual LPs have some stake, at least as a customer, into the companies as well. So that is fraught with a bit of issues if, if, if you don't know how to manage it well. Um, is, is that something that you thought about or, or think about when you, when you look at Join? I like the ambassador program a lot because I've worked on both sides of that table. 
um, I've, I've been the guy in the company selecting the software products uh, to, to optimize design or production or whatever. And I know something about the tensions of the, the, the in-house built product and the silo between one department and the other department. So from my point of view, if you have, you must have a champion to bring in an outside product quite often in companies. So this is, this is beautiful. This is the way that join can really add serious value. And by the way, we do the same. We have quite a few corporate LPs. We've we've had joint meetings in the joint office with a, a large group of Japanese executives talking about how can we bring, and then it's actually Isomer's LP looking through Isomer, through join to, to products. So in that sense, we're quite the same. Uh, we work with LPs in the same way, which I think in the early days of Isomer also was a surprise to LPs. Like, really, you can connect us to solutions and products and so on. Uh, and that arises out of out of our own corporate backgrounds at Isomer. So we are having the same mission there. That That's really aligned. And then we're both fund managers. So that's really aligned. You know, like none of it matters unless we build great products, get a customer base and drive good returns. So in that sense, we're the same. I don't really see a conflict there, but as I guess Toby said, it's hard to figure out and you must spend a lot of time with people. Are you are you going to be an investor in the fund or are you going to be strategic? Or I hope you're going to be both, <laughs> but that takes a lot of time. And I guess we've both learned the hard way. <laughs> uh, you just got to knock on a lot of doors, have a lot of conversations um, and, and try to understand what is the objective of the potential corporate partner or potential LP and can those objectives, can we help? You know, can those objectives line up? I guess the final thought I would give, what we're always trying to figure out is not only can we help, but can we find a way of working that's compatible with the founder, with how we're working? So so obviously we're not having a meeting every week with every LP, for example. We, we can't, right? So there's, there's a level of engagement and an expectation setting up front that, that has to fit because at the end we're we're all managing funds and that has to be the primary job um, so this strategic collaboration has to have a context that works a way of working that works so i'm always doing a little testing oh how do you operate your team how do you think about <laughs> engaging with the the founders how do you think about the products and you can figure out ahead of time is this a context within which we can work and drive mutual value uh, or, or not Maybe, Andreas, just to clarify, the ambassador network, there's no um, need to be an LP to be part of it. Yeah? So I would say the ambassador program is probably one-third LPs, two-thirds non-LPs. Yeah? So it, it's really not a requirement. Yeah? And, and um, the reason we now institutionalized it is exactly what Joe just said. Yeah? I mean, in the beginning, it was my partner, Sebastian, Jan, and myself, knowing a bunch of people oftentimes um, probably people quite high up in an organization and it just doesn't scale. I can't call the CEO every other week and say, hey, we have this really cool AI company. What do you think? And he's like, Toby, I, I love you, but sorry, I can't deal with this right now. Yeah, And so we needed to bring it one level below and you find the ambassador whose actual job role is to know and to feed the stuff in. Yeah, So we're not 
always pulling yeah so yeah. also some someone else is pulling the information in and we even have a dedicated uh, team member now vanessa joined us she's running the platform she's running the ambassador program and and it's a dedicated role to kind of um cluster these people match make and 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 tell us tell the investment team when we look at a deal um hey you should really show this to xyz yeah and 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 you need a dedicated resource to that because the fund manager you can't you can't do this you have other things to do yeah? and in terms of the your question on the conflict of interest there's really none because we don't raise the money from the corporate yeah and um, um, we raise the money from the owner which is basically the family office so the engagement then yeah. with the corporate that's a windfall profit. That's just an argument for the owner to say, look, I invested here. There's something yeah. good for you guys too. Yeah. So make yeah. the most out of it. But there's no no conflict. Nobody, nobody's PL is kind of in between. Yeah. Yeah. So you've never seen that play out. That 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 makes a lot of sense. I'd love to dive into the, your your thesis around the new industry or the Neue industry, as as you say, you're German, so of course you're using Neue. <laughs> um, I love to ask you because so industry is obviously manufacturing of products, hardware, all that stuff, um, and then it's take it's taking that digital. But does it matter at all whether they're producing for producing cars or producing uh, uh, windmills or a third thing? Um, or is it the, the, the actual process of just producing? No, and, and I think that's probably um, what we not mean by Neue Industry. Yeah, so the, the term is actually much broader. Yeah, so for example, you have a you have a chemical industry. Yeah, you have an automotive industry. Yeah, but maybe you have also um an industry in construction. Yeah, or you have an industry uh, in logistics, supply chain. So don't only think manufacturing. Yeah? Manufacturing is a large part of it, but we're not a manufacturing tech fund. Yeah? Okay. So we also invest, for example, in the digitization of, of property, which is very similar to a factory. There's a lot of sensors now. There's a lot of um, potential to save energy or bring HVAC consumption down or whatever. Yeah? So, so Neue Industry is not just manufacturing. It, it really is um, the, the, it includes transport. It, it, it could also include vertical um, uh, SaaS um, applications within large companies. So it's, it's a much broader spectrum. And, and I'll tell you why. Because if you're doing a very narrow, even narrower than Neue Industry uh, manufacturing tech fund, you're running the risk of being too exposed to a very specific trend. Yeah? And, and maybe in the return expectation, this may unfold late or may never unfold or be small. I think the risk for us would be too high. Yeah? And I don't think the market's developed yet to produce outstanding companies only in manufacturing tech. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for us, it's important, and our fund one was a was a real outperformer in DPI because we had um, three really good exits, and and those were companies that were already kind of using existing technology, well adapted to use case, and that tracked well, and and we were able to sell them at peak of the market, and it provided a lot of DPI that then fed our fund too. 
and and so fun too we're replicating that strategy so we're, we're seeking for the really crazy deep tech companies that are reinventing the world we're super excited about those but we'll also invest in a, in a guy for example who's disrupting a multi-billion oligopoly in an elevator maintenance service yeah mm -hmm. and 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 obviously he's not reinvented the wheel but he found a really good business model um and capturing a lot of attention and we can probably sell that company in five years time and return the fund yeah? and so from a from a portfolio construction perspective we really have to construct something that pays back the money yeah and 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 that is also important and um, we're diversifying not only on a deal by deal basis but also a little bit on the profile and the type of company we we want to put in that basket of neue industry i'm curious joe because and this will probably be our last question here Industry 4.0, because it, it's prescient in my mind because I'm from Denmark and Denmark is doing a lot in Industry 4.0 and robotics and so on. I'm going to a conference here in September, so only about that, bringing VCs that only focus on that. And and I'm curious because because Tobias just said, well, it's a bit narrow for us. I think you get too much exposure to <laughs> to just one sector if, if you do that. Is that your view as well? Um, that would would a would a robotics or, or industry 4.0 pure focused fund be? Ah, we're not quite there yet in Europe. I guess it, this is just a, a point of definition, right? Because the front end of all manufacturing is design, so you forget there's a giant engineering department. So so how's a company winning? Often it's winning on having a better product. Well, you need to build that product, but you also have to have a top flight engineering department. And if, if, if I look at the joint capital portfolio, I see an awful lot of design and engineering tools, um, specialized CAD tools, um, getting, getting those CAD designs in an automated way into the machine tools. Getting So for me, we're saying the same thing. I'm part of industry is uh, from the, even from the front end marketing, how do you find human resource? You know, you've done an HR company, right? Within specialized within that space so if you think more broadly about the industry i guess your mind may jump straight to the the building of the product but actually you need so many other things um so and having worked in this kind of company that for me is just part of the normal no, normal definition but can i uh can i give joint capital a badge of honor which i don't think i've ever told you um which i didn't realize we had our Eisner Capital annual meeting a couple of months ago, and so we were reporting to our investors what went on in 2022, the good, the bad, the ugly, and so on. And we realized, uh, diving deep into the data, that of all the 70-odd funds we've invested in so far, there was one group that gave us back more cash in 2022 than any other, and that was joint capital. And I don't think I told you that Toby so shame on me but uh, <laughs> that was uh, you know really impressive at a time where exits were slowing down uh, if you talk to the big world of LPs they were they had great distributions in 21 a bit of 22 but the idea the thesis that b2b kinds of companies they have longer sales cycles but revenues are sticky so in other words it takes a long time to get in to get your product into a big company. But once it becomes part of the business process, it has a long-term value generation. And that means also that in theory, exits should be 
somewhat less related to the the capital market cycle it should be more related to you know are you bringing value to your customer so i just want to say well done to join capital that uh, again I, it's not a metric we particularly think about but we kind of you know analyzing all the data and we realize wow well done and isn't isn't that the end goal of a, of a thesis like yours that you you create long-term value and that should be somewhat cycle proof if if you will and at times when all the consumers you know, remember stock markets are crashing all these you know high-flying consumer plays are now toast and and there we are having some great exits on the on the new industry side um so anyway I, just wanted to slip that in it somewhere or somewhere today. And, and that's the, the power of a diversified portfolio and the power of putting your customer up front, you know, creating, creating value for them. Very cool. Congrats, Toby. I think, uh, I think that's quite a feat. And now the quick Now, on that note, let's go to the quick fire round where I will ask you three quick answer questions. Tobias, first, I'll ask you to give us the advice that you would give to your own 10 year younger self. So I'll keep this within the fundraising um, and and VC kind of note. And um, my advice is in the fundraising, try to find people like Joe who are dedicated to committing and not spend so much time with people you're trying to convince that venture is a good thing. Yeah, because that's how wasted about a year time. And um, you should really spend the time with people, you know, that actually want to commit and they're just looking for the right deal. Yeah. And so everybody I talked about in this um, group of LPs and family office and industry, they are not your early backers. They come in once you're done basically yeah but you really need to spend time with someone you can craft the business with yeah and and that's why joe's role's been absolutely i mean we could not have done it without joe and his team yeah and 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 that's what everybody needs to find in the beginning before you even get going and and then you can build on that and i think that that'll be my advice like um don't try you can force the sale of your your lps it's not gonna work yeah you need to try to spend time with the people that really want to allocate. Totally agree. It's a, it's a very difficult thing to learn and evolve over time because everybody loves to talk. It's, it's free learning. Hey, Toby, tell me, you know, tell me about this aspect and that aspect, but you have to figure out a way uh, to determine, are you actually a potential investor? Are you allocating capital to the space? Because it's so vital in those early days to find those groups are really going to do something uh versus those maybe they come later but they're they're loving to talk to you for a learning uh, rather than an investment now what are your top tips for emerging vcs who are fundraising across europe think about your fund like a product we don't do that enough vcs are always advising founders on on their product build a better product think about the what value does it add what are the key features who wants to buy it what are the margins apply that same logic to your fund uh, why does the world need another fund? There's already too many funds. You need to come up with a really strong answer for that and keep building competitive advantage. Um, and, and two quick ones, uh, plan for the downside case. Think about what can go wrong. And we all are optimists and think about the upside. Plan for the downside, think about it, try to 
put provisions in. You may never need them, but fortune favors the prepared mind. And, and finally, it's going to be harder than you think. Uh, so hang in there because perseverance is the only thing that wins. And now Tobias, give us yours. Yeah, um, along these lines, um, my advice would be forget the fund in the very beginning because that's going to take a long time. Try to find a way to maybe even do deal by deal. Group uh, around your thesis, some people that want to give you money, not for a fund, but maybe for a deal. And then uh, go deal by deal and find a way of generating a little bit of management fee uh, when you do that. Because in venture, the problem is before you're really operational and you had your closing, there's no way for you to generate income. Uh, and, and that could be very hard on you and your family and everything. And, and we've been there. We made that mistake. It was very painful. And so I would say um, find a way to do some deals while you building the story and crafting the fund. Uh, I think that would have been uh, my advice. Because if you have deals, you're not selling a blind pool, which is also a very different thing. Yeah, So people can look and, and understand uh, what you're talking about with real examples. Absolutely. And now for 30 seconds each, what's the most counterintuitive thing you have learned in venture? Counterintuitive. Try to get to, to a no decision as quick as you can. And, and that applies on the fundraising side, but also on the investment side. And it's, it's counterintuitive because we all work very hard to make things work, to make things possible, to make things happen. But if, if you really believe that time is your most precious commodity, you need to really do everything you can to get to the, to the no decision. In other words, we're not going to evaluate this investment more because it's just not fitting or we, we can't spend more time with this potential LP because they're not allocating, they're not working. And, and the quicker you can streamline your process, also building your team to get to know that actually will pay you back and be very helpful and spend your time on, on the yes. So for me, um, in VC, you always think about investing and giving money and investing more cash. I think for me, the most counterintuitive is that it's not always the best answer. Yeah, More money, not always the best answer. So we learned some lessons where we should have probably invested less yeah, and figured out product market fit better and bootstrapped longer period and, and kind of be more stingy with the money yeah, uh, for the benefit of the founder. Yeah? And that's sometimes very counterintuitive where everybody thinks I need to raise big piles of cash. And, and I think that for us, uh, especially in, in our vertical, it's been, it's, been a, it's been very counterintuitive learning. Thanks, guys, so much for joining us for this episode. It was amazing to have you on, and it was amazing to join the VC party at SuperVenture. All right, everyone, if you enjoyed this episode of the European VC podcast, drop us a review, follow the pod, and subscribe at eu.vc. I am David, the LP Syndicate lead, joined by my dear co-host, Andreas the Hype Man. Thank you so much for tuning in today and can't wait to see you all out there. Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. This is a union of values. United and determined, we can serve as a model for other regions of the world. The nature of a problem requires a European response. Europe is a story of new beginnings, new, new beginnings. Let's start acting, acting, acting.